Westmount, let's just continue. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. And if you're visiting with us and need a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you. You'll see one right there. Take that, follow along with us. Romans chapter 12. We've studied the first 11 chapters of this letter concerning the gospel of God. Paul has presented the gospel of God, we would say, indicative. This is the what of the gospel. That's been our study, these 11 chapters. Last week, of course, we saw that culminate at the end of chapter 11 with a doxology. Doxology, the glory word, the glory words that were the fitting response to what the gospel indicates. We noted, remember, that right theology must give way to right doxology. It's the way it works. And more sound doctrine that gives way to true praise must lead to life practice. If it's authentic, it must. Life practice is imperative in light of the truths of the gospel of God. Accordingly, this next section in Romans, basically chapters 12 to 15, before some closing greetings, this 12 to 15 section is life instruction. Gospel of God instruction, gospel command, gospel imperatives. All through this section. Westmount, beginning here in Romans 12, 1 to 2, we will see gospel life. Look at it with me, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we do take these mercies from you, And we consider them, and we look to live in light of them, to give presentation to you. God, we pray by the hearing of the word this morning that you would indeed renew our minds and activate every member within us, Lord, to respond rightly to you. God, we pray that every week, especially here as we turn in Romans 12 to consider gospel life. Enable us, we pray. Amen. The church, we begin the second half of this letter today and consider, indeed, gospel life. So what is gospel life? What is it? It is life. It is new life, redeemed and renewed by the grace and mercy of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Restored to live fully, and we keep repeating this because it's so essential, restored to live fully as one ought to live to the glory of God. That's why we were made, right? Beloved, this is what the gospel of God does. It embreaks deadness. It regenerates and brings life for the purpose of living upright, godly, so that we can live as we were designed to give glory to the one who made us. And church, that is the path to glorifying God, pleasing him, being right in his sight. Note it in our journey through Romans. Gospel indications, gospel indicative, gospel prerequisite, regeneration and conversion first. We don't want to talk about life application without understanding the what. We can't. 
Because listen, gospel life must flow from that foundation. Otherwise, listen, it is simply guidelines that sit on the shelf with other, or the plethora we could say of other, wellness tips today. Isn't that true? Wellness, right living, cut off a foundation and just line them up. It's just another means to live by. That the masses hope work. But gospel life is not that. Gospel life is not that. Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. Logically. The gospel of God is salvation. And salvation, listen, is not simply escaping God's wrath. Consider that this morning. Salvation is not simply escaping God's wrath. Yes, praise God. The redeemed later will escape God's wrath, and we are ultimately thankful for that. Are we not? We are. Gospel life is eternal life, yes, but Westmount eternal life, as our Savior taught us, is here, it is now. John 17, 3, Jesus prayed, this is eternal life. What is it, Jesus? That they, all whom God gave to Christ, his disciples, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's eternal life. In other words, if the gospel of God has saved you, it means you know Christ. And listen, if you know the only true God in Christ, then it means eternal life is not then. Eternal life is now. You say, today, this morning... The morning I've had already? Yes. You say this week? Yes. Eternal life is now. Is now. I pray this morning, with all kinds of other distractions going on in your mind right now, you understand the implications that eternal life is right now. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is not a coming attraction. Your salvation is a present realm transfer. Do you know that? Radical and complete transition. You are not where you were. The surroundings may look the same in your life, but in the ultimate and most important sense, you're in a very different domain. As we studied in this letter in Romans 5, you have been moved from the headship of Adam to the headship of Jesus Christ. This is complete domain transfer. Now, Christian, from Adam in Christ, from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light. This is a transfer of trajectory for the believer. Recall again Romans 1. In Adam, what's the trajectory in Adam? Well, God is not honored. He's not thanked as he should, so what truth is suppressed, which leads to God, what, giving over to futility and darkness. That leads to more dishonor and evil, and so on, and downward it goes, right? That's Adam life, that's not gospel life. In Adam, the trajectory is downward, in Christ, the movement is upward. Looming wrath is now lavished mercy, The body, the body in Christ is no longer dishonored, but honored. Idol worship, do you remember that in Adam, is now God worship. Self-will in Adam is abandoned for God's will in Christ. The gospel of God, beloved, is complete reversal. 
In fact, the gospel life is no more observed in this, than in this fact, in this word, obedience. In Adam, what was our chief characteristic? It was this simply. Whatever God says, I'm not doing it. Right? That, that's Adam life. Well, if God said it, first of all, did he really say it? And I'm not doing it. Disobedience, not in Jesus. Praise the Lord. Yes, gospel life is obedience. Gospel life says, I need to know what God says, and I want to do what God says. That's life in Christ. In Jesus Christ, obedience moves from a bad word to a blessed word. And of course, this makes sense because, Christian, our lives follow who? Jesus. Christ. And what was the aim of Christ's life? What was the aim of Christ's life? Well, let's consider just a few of his comments. There's so many. Consider John 4, 34. My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 30. I seek not my own will, but the will of who? Him who sent me. Next chapter. John 6, 38. For I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We could go on and on and on. Jesus Christ, Christian, your Savior and Lord, came on a mission of obedience. So to follow him is to live the same. To follow him, were you tuned in to what we just sang? You begged the Lord for true obedience. Do you remember that? We just sung, speak, O Lord. You said, give me true obedience. Do you mean it? True obedience. You want an obedient life. Gospel life is the obedient life. Says Romans. Turn to chapter 1. Remember this. Chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There it is. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel of God. Verse 5 through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's one bookend. Go all the way to the end. Go to chapter 16. Why, Paul? Why are you writing this? Why the gospel of God? Verse 25. As he closes it in doxology, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. All of that he is covered in this letter and then this to bring about what? The obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Beloved, this letter repeatedly shows us that the gospel of God is obedience to God. You cannot get away from that. The gospel life is obedient life. It is Jewish obedience. Chapter 2, it is Gentile obedience. Chapter 15, verse 18. Gospel life is nothing less than one man's obedience making us righteous So that where sin once reigned in death in Adam in our bodies, now grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 19 through 21. Westmont, Christ, listen, is both the pattern and the source of our obedience. 
Christ is both the pattern and the source of our obedience. This is exactly what we saw and studied, is it not, in Romans 6. In Christ, we now can, we've been set free to a different master, righteousness, to obey. Turn to Romans 6. This is glorious, just glorious. Remember chapter 6, verse 6? Let's be reminded of this section, this indicative truth. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that purpose we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's why the transfer. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you see that? Body of death, body of life. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See that? So you also, so see that? This is the truth of Jesus. Now it's true of you, Christian. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 12 to 14. Do you remember this? What are the implications of what we just read and saw there? In those verses, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, you're going to be obedient to something and someone. Who is it? Your passions or, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness to obey him. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Again, this is just by way of recap the implications of the gospel of God. Christian, you are in a new position before the Almighty. Through Christ, you are redeemed. Yet as we studied in Romans 6, and that would lead us into Romans 7, you are not glorified yet, Romans 8. Not glorified yet. You are positionally holy, 100%. And again, praise God. You're positionally holy, right? But you're not practically holy 100%, right? You're not. Because of the peace of Adam, the flesh that clings so close, because of that, listen, beloved, holiness is not automatic, is it? It's not a one-to-one. Practical holiness, living out your salvation in light of the already but not yet, in light of the flesh, is not a passive inevitability. So you can't turn on the cruise control. You can't grab the raft for the lazy river. That's not the way it works. But sadly, we operate that way, don't we? We don't even think that much of the activity, the intention of holiness at times, do we? If we're being honest. At times, we have this passivity that's embedded in our fallen flesh that says, well, I'm in Jesus, so I think I'm, my default will be okay, practically. Like eternal life, we act as if holiness is shelved until we get to heaven. That would be the worst end of it. That's how we function sometimes. Well, at least I'm saved. What am I doing today? But that is not what the New Testament or this letter Romans teaches. I told you we would probably bristle at this. It's not your saved, big period, And Romans 11 is the end of the letter. We live as if it should be that. 
gives, gospel of God indicatives, then it gives, and here it is, this frames where we're going in the weeks and months ahead, it gives gospel of God imperatives. Romans 12 and on, exhort, command, and then repeat, be holy, be holy, and even more, if that wasn't enough for our sensibilities, be holy like this, be holy specifically like this, Not holiness your way or your brand or your stripe. Be holy, says the word of God, just like this. Again, in our flesh, we will resist and balk at such definition and demand for gospel living. But beloved, I present to you as we begin this chapter, is there anything new that we're learning? Did God just all of a sudden in Romans 12 in the New Testament turn specific? Remember the garden in Genesis 2? He said, there's some tree, you're going to find it somewhere, you'll feel it in your heart, that tree not to touch. Did he say that? It was a specific tree not to eat from. In fact, very, very specific. Not that one. At the mountain, was it just words? Just a jumbled word cloud of things maybe you should, could consider to do? no. Ten words, ten commandments, and then a whole body of law and words. Very precise. How about the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5 to 7. Anything but vague tips for well living, right? Anything but that. No, Christian, gospel life is New Testament listen command and specific command. It is living as a slave to righteousness. It's living under the law of Christ. It means you're a slave to righteousness and your master is Jesus. The one who bought you and who owns you. In fact, gospel life, we could sum it up this way. Gospel life is this. This is what it is. Jesus is Lord. That's what gospel life is. Paul does an outline in 11 chapters what God has done and given to you. Listen, beloved, please. He doesn't outline it, only to leave it there and then turn around and ask, well, what can you give back to Jesus? Some emotional guest speaker or parachurch appeal making a plea to act. No, Paul turns in Romans 12 and gives gospel life commands. Commands to live like this now. What's more, those commands are to give ourselves, our whole selves fully. The waves just arrest us one after another, after another, after another. Fully give up yourself. In fact, if we were to sum up this next section, practically, the banner is Jesus is Lord, but we would sum it up in this salient command. Give yourselves fully, wholly, and completely to God. Christian, give yourself up to him. You say, well, can I hang on to something? No, fully. Put it on the altar and give it up. And if that is not an offense to our flesh enough, we will also see this here by way of introduction to Romans 12. The gospel life is not only giving up self utterly, but we will see this over and over. It's giving up self corporately. And we really don't like this. The world loves to package biblical motifs right we're in it together let's do it together right it means nothing right it really means nothing ultimately the only true corporation 
is what God prescribes in the gospel of life. Beloved, this is regularly missed in a reading of Romans 12 and so on, especially in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So many well-intended, I will say, well-intended rush to Romans 12, 1 and 2 and look at what they can get out of those verses and what they need to do for their own body, but they're missing it. Gospel life is not an individual life. Listen, gospel life is community life. The gospel of God saves you not onto yourself to live eternal life here and now. The gospel of God saves you into a body made up of many members. So yes, where salvation's message was it's not about you, sanctification's message also is it's not about you. A body of many members who together live eternal life, giving up themselves collectively here and now. What a picture. We'll have so much more to say about this as we move through these chapters. They will speak for themselves. But by way of introduction, let's be clear on the context. You're clear this morning. We're not pulling this out of the air. Look at Romans 12, verse 3. Just listen to the words. This is the context for the verses we're about to dip into these next two weeks. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, look at it, are one body in Christ, and individually, no period there, members one of another. Could that be clearer? So important. This is the context of these imperatives. This is the context of the gospel life. Gospel life is the body of Christ. Gospel life is the body of Christ. Gospel life is not the individual life. It's not rogue Christianity. Gospel life is not consumerism. It's not a Christian that says, what can I get out of it? What can I get out of this church? What did I get out of service today? That's consumerism. That's not true Christianity. Gospel life is not selfishness. Gospel life doesn't have the protest, well, I didn't sign up for that, or I wasn't asked to do that, and what am I supposed to do, and I'll only do that? No. Gospel life is not fear. Gospel life is not what will they think of me. And not doing something because of fear of others. It's doing something because you love others, regardless of what they think. Gospel life is not pride. I'm above that now. I'm moving through the the echelons of Christianity, and there'll be someone else and put under this veiled banner of discipleship. That's not Christianity at all. That's pride. And all of it, by the way, is all self-focused thinking. It's gospel toxin is what it is. It's not gospel life. Self-absorbed Christianity, by the way. And why is this important? Why do we need to stress this? Self-absorbed Christianity, which is everywhere, by the way, is exactly why reams of local churches gave up on the gospel of God the past four years. That's why they did. Living exhibit A's. Yes, four years, by the way. Can you believe that? In two months, it'll be four years. By the way, 
I was struck by this recently. Some are still struggling to get back together. Listen, you can't get back together if you never were together. Gospel life is community, always, in every circumstance, all the time. Always. There is no situation in which you're not together. If the gospel of God is individual commands, individualistic commands, self-absorbed commands, then of course, consider in reflection, I can be the body of Christ by myself. I can be, as someone told me over the past four years, I can have my church in my home. I just have to make sure the window's open so the neighbor's here. If I read Romans 12, 1 to 2 as words just to me, then I really don't need anyone else to live like Christ, do I? Because it's just me and Jesus. Westman, as we arrive at a passage like Romans 12, 1 to 2, you see why this is so important. Let us please check our preconceived notions about famous texts at the door. Let us test them. Let us read and study this text responsibly together as it was written and designed to be. But can we do that? Let's look carefully at verse 1 this morning. Next week, we'll look at verse 2. So verse 1, and in verse 1, we'll consider the call to present our bodies as a sacrifice. And we're going to present it this way because I think before we can present something, we have to recognize we need to let go of something, don't we? And we really... We struggle with the prerequisite, don't we? First of all, our first point is we relinquish our bodies. Look at verse 1. We relinquish our bodies. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. His address as it has been often in Romans, is the brothers, the predominantly Gentile, some Jew, the once hostile, once defined by national mosaic tile, no longer. Now, says Paul, they are brothers all together. As we learned in Romans 4 and Romans 9 through 11, brothers are all of those by faith, the Jew first and Also the Greek, chapter 1, no longer under condemnation. Why? Because they're in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. Paul turns and addresses practically now this new, beautiful, blended community of faith. Differing in ethnicity, differing in heritage, even in the old religion, but united in Christ. And to the brothers, Paul says, I appeal to you. Now, many, many versions here weaken that. Weaken it a little more than it should be. Appeal is that. This is less an urgent ask or appeal, and it's more of a firm request. The LSB has exhort, I believe. And that gets us there. So what is this exhortation to the collective church, the brothers, the body of Christ? Well, Paul hinges his coming gospel request. On that word, therefore, do you see it in verse 1? He's hinging what he's going to say on that, therefore. That's a loaded therefore. Now, we've looked at that word before, Westmount, therefore, but none, I would submit to you in our studies, are as weighty as this one. For no other reason all it's tied to it. Recall, therefore, links us back to what was just said. And here, what was that? Well, the connection, the foundation, is not just Romans 11, I mean, it is that. It's not just Romans 9, 10, and 11. It certainly can be that, but it's Romans 1 through 11. We know that Paul is looking back at all 11 chapters, and you say, well, how do you know that? Because of what he says next. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by what? The mercies of God. That was not just a chapter 11 thing. It certainly wasn't just a chapter 9, 10, and 11 thing. This is a loaded entreaty here. Paul's basis of request is the mercies of God. And beloved, this exhortation is like a double-sided coin presented in this letter to the believer. On one side, I want you to capture it with me, on one side is the mind. One side of the coin is the mind. It's the mental knowledge acquisition just been covered in these 11 chapters. It's the wide expanse of the gospel of God. This is technical. This is detail. This is the indicative. This is the reality considered, brothers and sisters, that we are now justified right before God, not because we deserve or earned it, but because of God's mercy. So Paul's exhortation here points to that actuality of the gospel of God. That's one side. But on the other side of the coin is the will. This is the emotional reception. This is the, did it just hit your mind? Did it go deeper? Did you digest the reality stuff, right? This is what this is. We could say it in in really a, a layman vernacular, say, did you hear what Paul just said about the mercies of God? This is the persuasion of the apostle to the forgiven saint. It is consideration by the mercies of God, brothers and sisters. This is heart compulsion. A couple of theologians, both named John, by the way, said it best. John Stott, one, said this, I quote, There is no greater incentive to holy living, I love this, than a contemplation of the mercies of God. Are you compelled this morning by the mercies of God? Does that compel you that you have been forgiven? I I, I want to submit to you this morning, for myself first and foremost, when you feel struck and offended and frustrated, contemplate the mercies of God, that you will not get what you deserve. Is your life this morning, this week, fueled by the mercies of God? John Calvin said this, I quote, Men will never worship God with a sincere heart. That's quite a statement. Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey Him with sufficient zeal, and this, until they properly understand how much they're indebted to His mercy. Amen. Have you contemplated the mercies of God this morning? And I pause to ask you because you need to before we get into Romans 12. Maybe this week, rather than being frustrated that we're only doing one verse, you take the time and say, thank you, God, that I can pause and consider the mercies of God. Mercies of God. The mercies of God. Westmount brothers and sisters, the same consideration is before us this morning as it was for those men, as it was for Paul, and now us. The mercies of God have confronted both our mind and heart. So now what? So now what? We relinquish our bodies. Note this important prerequisite to presentation. We need to relinquish our bodies. Verse 1, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice. Now, the attentive Bible reader would immediately recognize the word there, sacrifice. You can't read your Bible rightly from beginning to end. Right From left to right, from Old Testament to New, without recognizing this word sacrifice. It is a prominent picture in the Old Testament. 
in a word, we're taken back to not just the Old Testament, to a system that was embedded in the Old Testament, are we not? The Old Testament sacrificial system given in the law in Leviticus. We peeled the first layer of that back in our study in Exodus, remember? The many sacrifices called for and presented before God by way of law. Yes, and through a specific temple system. A law code given in a time and a place for specific offerings. So let's peek back. We did Exodus, but I think Leviticus really helps us here. Go to Leviticus 1. This is very, very important for us to understand what Paul is teaching us in Romans 12. He's taking what you've already learned, not just in Romans 1 to 11, but Christian, listen, he's taken what you should know about the Old Testament and about Israel, and he's applying the full force of that to your life now. This is so, so important. I'm going to begin in verse 1 of Leviticus 1. Listen carefully. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So much we must observe here. But let's do this carefully. Notice first that something, verse 3, is offered to God. A change of possession. Someone brings something in their possession and they give it to the possession of Yahweh. Do you see that? I'm giving this to you, God. Do you note that? That's number one. Two, also notice that the sacrifice contains detail. I'm sorry that we must belabor this point, but in our very amorphous environments that we live in, we must. God is a God of order and detail. It contains specific detail. God doesn't say, you know what, grab a bull and kill it, does he? He has very specific instructions down to parts of what to do. Three, Notice that the sacrifice is killed before the Lord. Do you see that? Very important position. Before the Lord. Verse 5, as an offering. This killing is for offering. Very important. Also notice that the sacrifice must be, look at verse 3, without blemish. A bull, so it's a set-apart bull. This is not just any bull, a bull without blemish. A perfect bull, we could say. Finally, notice that the sacrifice must be acceptable to God. Look at verse 9. It said so wonderfully, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's such a good way to deem it. That's how you know it's acceptable, because it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, before we turn back to Romans, and hopefully these things, these details are just in our minds, a couple of things to note. If we were to keep reading, just actually turn a few pages in Leviticus, you're going to see offering after offering, 
right? It carries right through, not just through chapters 9 with Aaron's offering, then to chapter 10, and gives way in chapter 11 to laws for clean and unclean animals. Very specific detail. Just take it in. This is the Lord laying out sacrifice after sacrifice, and many of them all offered to the Lord. Before we turn back to Romans, turn to Hebrews. So we go forward now. We turn back. We're going to go forward. Of course, we live after the advent of Jesus, right? As we learn, as we think about what the coming of Christ did and what it reframed for us, think about the Mosaic Law was one of those things. The Mosaic Law, of course, given in a time and place, rightly understood now with the advent of Christ, right? So important. Again, a lot of this, I pray, is review. Christ came and he fulfilled the law by living out those precepts perfectly, and then taking that life without blemish and laying it down and giving up himself, right? That's what Christ did. Now let's read this particular New Testament passage, Hebrews 10, and then we'll make a comment. Now look very carefully and look for the continuity. Chapter 10, For since the law has but a shadow, see that, of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, we know what law that is, since the Mosaic law, a shadow of the good things to come. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, for salvation, if they were effectual, they would have stopped, right? But they didn't. Three, but in these sacrifices is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. They weren't effectual to atone for true salvation. They did something else. We'll come back to that. Verse four, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this important context, let's read five on. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. So good. But a body, note the word, you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's from Psalm 40, but it sounds, I pray, an awful lot like what Joshua read this morning, doesn't it? Out of Micah. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, listen to this, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's an important appendix here. Let's not miss it. Verses 11 to 14. Look carefully. And every priest, this is the old, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now listen, Yahweh never said, oh, by the way, this is what you don't know right now. It really doesn't have a effectual atonement, so I'm just having you go through the motions. No, everything with Yahweh, a purpose, a reason. We're going to come back to that, but I want you to see that. They still had to do it. 13 or 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, here it is, for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, this is effectual salvation, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A lot there, beloved, but grab the continuity between those two. So let's make sure we're tracking first with this passage before we leave it. Before we know what is first, look back at verse 1. The law in Leviticus that we read was but a shadow. You see that? The law was a shadow, not the true form. Also notice those sacrifices never took away sin. Verse 4. Only the single sacrifice of Jesus does that. So with that key, we note this. The Old Testament sacrificial system, listen, listen, was not designed for actual sin atonement, but for brokering an already established relationship. This is key, beloved. God freed his people from Egypt. He did the work. The salvation, the redemption was all him. And he said, to keep relationship, to live in light of your deliverance, live this way. That's what the purpose of the sacrifices. Do you see that? I'm giving you a system in which you live now as my redeemed people, as a holy nation. That was the point in the old. And I hope you see now how that points to the new and what we're being called to do here. Christ's body, and look at Hebrews 10 one more time before we leave it. Verse 10, Christ's body was the sacrifice for sin. And it was a whole body complete sacrifice. And of course, Christ did not just die, but he rose again and he's alive in death. Amazing. So in the Old Testament law, we were given a pattern of sacrifice. The sacrifice of life saved Jesus Christ, right? In his sacrifice. And a pattern of sacrifice for life lived. Israel, and now let's turn back to Romans. For the Christian. As you're turning back to Romans, let's put this all together. In Christ, a bodily sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, brought our salvation in Jesus In God's people, a bodily sacrifice is called for, which is now not no longer dead in Adam, but in Christ, living, holy in Christ, acceptable in Christ to God, to live out Christ. We're living sacrifices in the sacrifice, right? I hope that makes sense. As you've learned in Romans, we are in Jesus and thus must live out Jesus. We obediently follow the pattern of Christ, not the power to take away sins. We can't do that. And the good Christian knows Jesus and Jesus alone did that. But he set a pattern for us in sacrifice. Now we follow Christ in the pattern of sacrificial giving back and offering to God. In Christ then, it's not a matter of if we should give ourselves to God. In Christ is a particular and a practical reality that we must do that flows out of our union with Jesus. In fact, many theologians have said it this way. It's not a matter of if you should do. For the true Christian, it's like, I can't help but do. How how can I do anything else? This is what it means to be in Christ and followers of Jesus. Again, verse 1, look at it now. With Leviticus 1 and Hebrews 10 in your mind, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in light of what Christ has done with the one sacrifice by the mercies of God, in light of that, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
So good. Westmount, body of Christ, the call here is to do just as Christ did. To give our whole life. Present your bodies and note that. That's plural. This is a collective call to all of us. Each one of us, together as one, must relinquish our bodies. Westmount Saints is a living sacrifice. This is the whole animal was placed alive on the altar. So this really doesn't work if just a few of you decide, you know what, I'm going to give to Jesus today. No, 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 no. It's all of us or none of us, right? Says the text. Do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God? Turns out we depend on each other more than we think, don't we? This is not just the totality of your individual body. Now listen, it is that. It is that, believer. But it's not just that. Paul is presenting something much more important and bigger here. It is your skin and your soul, but this is the totality of the composition of the body of Christ in the local assembly. That is indeed every Christian that calls this place home, that is a member of Westmont Bible Chapel, that is a part of this assembly. This is all of us together offering up corporately our bodies, as the text says, presenting them to God. And this is concrete offering, Westmount. Please. We're not offering up inner sentiments here, right? That's not what we're doing. This is offering up our hands, our feet, our tongues, our brains, every member, Romans 6, offered to God. Beloved, can I say this with you? You hold nothing back. You place it all on the altar. There is no corner that you hold back. For the sake of your brothers and sisters, you cannot hold back. You give all. And, and, and we're going to see, you give all or none. There's no partial offering. How did that turn out for Israel? And particularly if you read Leviticus 10, how did that turn out for partial offerings? One imagines the protest. Well, at least I gave some of it. Our living bodies are made alive in Jesus Christ. Living sacrifices in the sacrifice. That's what we are here at Westmount, in some. Our sacrifice is not just living, but it is also, look at verse 1, holy and acceptable. See that? Don't miss those characteristics. Holy and acceptable. That points us right back to the law, doesn't it? See that connective tissue. Beloved, we present our bodies holy and acceptable. That's right. And here it is, glorious. You can present holy and acceptable. I pray we're at a point here at Westbound where there's no protest like, well, who is holy and perfect? No, you can, because the one you're in is perfect and holy. Why? Because of Jesus, the one sacrifice, the sacrifice is in the sacrifice. He is the holy and acceptable one. And listen to me, if you believe in Jesus and you follow him, you are in him. So it means daily you live in him, daily you present that sacrifice, your whole body, which is living in Christ, not Adam, to God. It's lived out, that sacrifice, in our bodies. That's what we do. We live it out practically in our bodies. Not just thoughts of what could be in our minds. You live it out in everything you do. In the weeks ahead, we'll see exactly what it means to be holy and acceptable. 
And again, Paul is very specific. Very specific. Finally, Paul wraps this first verse. We can't leave without this calling such sacrifice. Look at verse 1. Our spiritual worship. That is fine. I really appreciate the King James here. It really gets it. It says, which is your reasonable service. That's a very good translation. Which is your reasonable service. It's such a pregnant expression, and we have to leave it with good understanding. Number one, we would say this, our bodies presented as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable. Here it is reasonable. It's appropriate. There is no other appropriate gospel of God response. That's the point. There can be no, a holy and acceptable and living sacrifice is the only response deemed worthy in the sight of Creator. In light of Christ's life laid down to God for us, it is only fitting then that we do the same. Do you see that? So many want to do what Jesus did, they just don't want to sacrifice like Jesus did. Right? In light of Christ's life laid down to God for us, it is only fitting, beloved. It is reasonable or spiritually appropriate. I was just taken aback this week reading that even the pagan deists of old understood this. I couldn't believe it. I want to just read you one. Epictetus said this in the first century. This is a pagan deist. He said this. He got it. And he uses the same word that's in this passage. Were I a nightingale, I'm quoting him, were I a nightingale, I would do what is proper to do as a nightingale. Were I a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I am spiritual. That's the same word in Romans 12.1. I am spiritual, so thus I must praise God. Who are you? How do you live? There is no other appropriate spiritual right response to God for the Christian, for all humanity, they just can't do it, than to present our bodies completely living, holy, and acceptable in sacrifice to God. That's reasonable. Secondly, look at the second part of it. It's not just reasonable or spiritual, but it is our worship or our service. That's really good. The word behind worship there means service, in fact. In fact, if you were to look at the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, and you look, that word, same word, refers to the temple service in the Old Testament. Yes, the sacrificial system, that's what it's pointing us back to. So you see the connection. Paul is making sure that this is clear here as he opens up this practical gospel life section. As daily offering was made of old to broker and keep relationship with God, so too still today, Paul says, in your bodies, offered up as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices. Neither sacrifices atoned for sin. Neither of them, right? Only Jesus Christ. But listen, here's the point. Whether in Israel or the church, the sacrifices were commanded as a framework for collective godly living. And I pray that's the point as we leave. They were given as a framework for godly living. Living out relationship with Yahweh. That's it. And that really then is the spine of all that we are going to learn in this blessed chapter and chapters and on. Saints, we relinquish our bodies. We present them wholly to God as a sacrifice. So, Westman, let's be clear on the takeaways as we close and leave this text for this week. Number one. 
If you have been saved by the mercies of God, a life response is demanded. That's what we've learned. Number two, gospel life response is not partial. It's full-bodied. It gives wholly to God. Three, gospel life is our living, our holiness, the acceptable sacrifice of our bodies, of our everything to God, like Jesus. Four, this is our reasonable service. It is appropriate and befitting of God's mercy, right? We learn that. And five, his sacrifice is corporate. It is all of us together giving, serving our king. That's the call to the church. Not to anyone, but to everyone. This is the call in this letter, these chapters, these verses to follow Christ. The command is to present our bodies, bring our lives together as a daily offering of worship to our king. That's the call. We follow the example of Jesus, our Savior, and gospel life banner, our Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these imperative truths that you give to us. Thank you that it is not just the what and that you leave us to figure out reality on our own, Lord, that you take us very precisely and specifically in your word. And we are so thankful we get to begin this journey in the second half of Romans. Oh, God, help us, we pray, as we look to live in light the gospel life realities. Father, we do commit now our living in light of this morning and the living ahead in the months to come as we study it to you. In Christ's name we pray.